Our scripture passage today is Job 19, verses 13 through 27, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. The book of Job is all about suffering. And in our Western culture, we look at this book and we say, why? Why? So we have a story of a man who had everything, but God let Satan take everything away from him. And it doesn't seem like it's a good reason. Because Satan says, well, he'll reject you if you do that. He says, okay, go ahead and do it. And he does it. Takes everything away from him to see if Job will reject him. Reminds me of the movie Trading Places where they made this bet that they could take a guy off the street and make him an executive and make the executive end up on the street and they bet each other a dollar, these wealthy men. It almost seems like that. What are they do? What is going on here? What is going on with this thing? We look around us and we see suffering. And then comes the moment when we have to endure suffering. And we wonder why, but possibly the bigger question is, where is God? Where is God in all of the suffering? Doesn't he care? These are some of the questions that Job is asking. So Job is afflicted with many things. He lost his possessions. He loses his children. Then he loses his health. He gets these boils all over his body. And none of it seems to make sense. And one of the things that is so unique about the book is that Job has four friends, supposed friends, 
and also his wife that come and have ready answers for him as to why it's happening. So many people have ready answers for why we suffer. Well, it's because of this or that or the other. They sound very pious in the book. They sound theological. It seems like they know what they're talking about. A lot of the things they say are like, yeah, I, I see that. So if I were writing the book of Job, my plot would have gone something like this. Job is wealthy, but of course he's arrogant. And God strikes him down to give him humility. The four friends come and relate God's truth to him. Job repents. And then God restores Job. Wouldn't that be a nice little neat package? And we could get the moral of the story, don't be arrogant. That would work really well, right? Um, but that's not the way it goes at all. <laughs> When God speaks at the end of the book, he condemns the four friends. They say a lot of theological things that seem right. They seem good. And he condemns all four of them. And in fact, he never answers the question about suffering. It's a book about suffering and God never answers why. So why do we suffer? Well, the answer that God gives, actually, there is an answer. <laughs> there is an answer, but it's not an answer that's popular. It's not an answer that we like. God basically says, who are you to talk back to me and question me? Who are you to tell me why I do what I do? Were you there when I made the earth? Were you there when I formed you? That's chapters 39 and 41. It's the, the end of the book where God speaks and, and he just kind of, he doesn't answer any of the questions that Job has or that the friends have. He just declares himself to be God. Basically, my ways are not your ways and I don't answer to you. Wow, we don't like that. What's Job's response to that? We have it in chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. His only response to seeing God to being in the presence of God is that he falls on his face. Doesn't this seem strange to you? But over and over and over again in the Bible, when human beings are in the presence of God, they are undone because they see him in all of his glory and splendor, and then they realize that they're nothing before him. This happens over and over again, and our world hates this. In fact, we hate this. In our culture, I've heard people accusing this God, this God of the Bible, especially this Old Testament God who doesn't wrap things up in nice, neat little packages. As I've heard of him described as cold-hearted, power-hungry, glory-hungry, a megalomaniac, somebody who would want to worship that God. He's a God who shouldn't even be believed in anymore. 
So is this the God of the Bible? Well, no, it's not. So many people come up with reasons for why they don't believe in God. And the question of suffering is one of the biggest ones. I don't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. But I would say this, if you're going to reject God, if you're going to reject the God of the Bible, it would be better to find out who he is first and not just take a sort of a, a belief that's out there. It would be better to find out who he is first. Is God just a cold-hearted deity that tells us because I said so, that's why? We didn't like it when our parents told us that. But the answer is overwhelmingly no. And why is that? Because the entire Bible is a, is a story of rescue. God rescues his people from eternal death because they turned against him. Instead of looking to him, they looked to themselves. But God in his grace and mercy pursues his enemies and makes them friends. This is the God of the Bible. So the purpose of the Bible is not to give us a ready-made answer for suffering. It's to give us a clear view of God and how he's condescended with grace and mercy to a human race that deserves nothing. That's the purpose. But he's not oblivious to suffering, is he? Because his son suffered in our place. And that's what we have here today in our passage. It's a prophecy by Job of what he expects from God. And in the process, I think we get a view of God's heart in the middle of his suffering, in the worst part of his suffering. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. How could he get that? Where did he get that from? Nothing is going well for him. Nothing. And yet he makes this declaration. So what I want to do this morning, very briefly, is to look at three uses of the word for redeemer in scripture and how Job most likely would have understood this word. I think he would have understood this word in three different ways that goes beyond just our English translation of the word redeemer. It's not less than that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here are the three, and these are my three points. Number one, kinsman. Number two, vindicator, and number three, redeemer. So kinsman, vindicator, and redeemer. So let's look at kinsman first. So the word for redeemer in Hebrew is ga'al, and it means much more, as I just said, than the English translation of the word. One of the major areas of significance in the Old Testament was something called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. Here's the definition of a kinsman redeemer. A relative that has the right of redemption over a deceased relative's household and one who was legally able to redeem his close male relative's wife in order to bring up sons for the deceased's lineage. So the idea of lineage in the Old Testament is extremely important that even after death, a relative would have to marry the widow and have children in the name of of the deceased one. 
There's another use to the word kinsman. And it's not as much redeemer, but the kinsman idea. When someone was murdered, a relative or a kinsman would be able to go and get justice for that. Would have the right to hunt that person down and administer justice. So the idea of a relative that would come and represent someone, be their ally, be on their team, be the one that represents. Family is so important in the Bible. And yet, family are some of the hardest relationships that we experience in this life. And why is that? It's because the closer the relationship, the more expectations there are and the more chance to let people down. In fact, if you have a rupture in a relationship, if they're a distant friend, it doesn't mean that much. But if it's your spouse, it's terrible, it's horrible because of the closeness of the relationship. The closer the relationship, the more the expectation and the more chance to let someone down because, and here's the truth, none of us can live up to the expectations that people put on us. Most of us let our closest uh, family members down on a regular basis. In fact, unrealistic expectations of all conflict, isn't it? We have an expectation of someone, they don't measure up, we're mad about it. Um, and this was one of the causes of much suffering for Job because even his family rejects him. We have that whole thing in 13 to 19. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maid servants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. His brothers have turned against him. His relatives have failed him. His children have failed him. Everybody has walked away from him. And then he has these four supposed friends who are pushing on him with great expectations. And even his wife turns against him. It tells us in Job 2.9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. This is what Anne says to me on a regular basis. It's the gift of encouragement that she has. I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that one. He has no one to fight for him. No one to avenge him, to be his ally. Even God is silent. And that's why I think it's supernatural that he declares the prophecy. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He is holding out that God would be his ally. My brothers and I grew up in Chile, um, and we went to Chilean public schools, and 
my mom would teach us at home. But there was one year where we went to a missionary school in the capital city of Santiago. And we would go there during the week with my mother. My dad stayed back at the little town in Los Andes where we lived. And, um, and then he would come get us and take us back for the weekend. It was about a, an hour drive or hour and a half maybe. And at that school, we were a bunch of boneheads um, as usual. And my oldest brother, Gary, was always the ringleader and he was a bit of a rebel. rebel. Well, he, he would stand here and tell you that too. Um, and he led us all. I was the youngest and I was pretty much of a follower and I just followed him everywhere and did, did what he said to do. Well, there was a bright idea from somebody that we were going to play soccer, one-on-one soccer. Uh, there'd be a goalie and then somebody would dribble on goal and try to score. And we were gonna do it for money. Um, and in those days, drinking, smoking, and chewing were like the most evil things you could possibly do as a Christian. So gambling was right in that list with that. And this was an evil. But anyway, we were gambling with one another. And so I was gambling, and I was playing, and suddenly I turn around, and I'm suddenly in debt by $42. $42. It might as well have been a million dollars. I didn't have one dollar. I was only 10 years old. $42. Where am I going to get $42? I was terrified, terrified, terrified. And along comes my big brother. And he says, uh, I'm going to do something about this. So he begins to play for me. And he played and played and played. And he got my debt all the way down to $7. And then we got caught and all got in trouble and nobody owed anybody anything. Okay, so maybe that was the real kinsman redeemer. But you see, the idea, he was my kinsman redeemer. You have no idea how I felt about that. I was, I was, I, I was devastated. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, he was fighting for me. I had a kinsman redeemer. And what I want to say to every one of us here, no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark the road might seem, no matter how impossible the situation is, the truth is that we have a kinsman redeemer. There's this great passage in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2.10. It says, for it was fitting that he, talking about Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers. Jesus is our brother. But in order for him to be our kinsman redeemer, he had to be cut off. He had to be abandoned. He was abandoned on the cross so that we wouldn't be. See, he was the one who was our kinsman redeemer. So we may have some ideas about God and we have negative ideas about God and about suffering, but you can't say he's indifferent to our suffering. Because as our kinsman redeemer, he suffered. Number two, 
vindicator. So not only did Job suffer physical torment with boils on his body and family rejection, but now he's falsely accused by his friends. All four of them talk on and on, but the basic accusation is the same for all four of them. Each one tells Job that he is suffering because he has sinned, because there's something particular that he has done that he needs to repent from, and if he repents from that, he will be healed. That's the formula. Is that true? There are swaths of the Christian church that believe that, that if you have enough faith or maybe you repented enough, you can be healed. And it may be. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I think it does probably. But I don't think this is what they call linear theology. If we do this, God will do this. And I don't think that's biblical at all. It's not that kind of linear thing that we have. How often have we thought this in our own lives? We're, su we're suffering for something and we're convinced that God is punishing us because of something we did. I I've thought this lots of times. I gotta think that maybe you're thinking it too. I haven't quite been dedicated enough and that's probably why all this kind of stuff is happening. That's, that's just accusations from the enemy uh, because, of course, we haven't measured up, right? Uh, and, of course, <clears throat> we can always think of something that we did wrong. It's, it's that linear theology. It's, it's as if God is a puppet on a string. If I do this, then he has to do that. And so when I suffer, what did I do wrong? Why did he do this to me? I have been a good Christian. I've heard people say that as well. But this is the kind of thing that somehow we are able to sway his plan. That somehow by our actions, his plan is in jeopardy. And of course, this is false. We don't control anything. If God's plan depended on us, he, his plan would be thwarted. Um, and we've already seen that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So what is it about his thoughts and his ways that are so different from ours? What is it that makes this not be linear theology? Isaiah gives us sort of a glimpse into this little picture of, of God's greatness, how his ways are not our ways. And he tells us in what ways his ways are not our ways. That's a good one. In what ways are his ways not our ways? Look at this in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God's ways are not like ours in what way? Well, in many ways, but in this passage, he freely pardons. That is not our natural habitat. 
We struggle with revenge, thoughts of revenge and bitterness and anger and malice at people that do things to us, people that let us down, people that harm us. We struggle with all of these things, but his compassion and his mercy to the undeserving makes his ways far superior to ours. He's the one that has the right to destroy. He's the one that has the right to come in and obliterate. But his heart is a heart of mercy and compassion for he freely pardons his ways. Certainly are not our ways. See, Job is expecting to be vindicated by his redeemer. He's expecting it. Are you? Brothers and sisters, just as Job had an enemy in Satan and he had false, four false accusers that were doing the work of Satan, so we too have an enemy. It's the same enemy that Job had and he accuses us or he sends his messengers to accuse us and it devastates us because we actually believe him. Why do we believe him? Well, we know we're guilty. When someone accuses us of something, we usually get very angry and we set out to vindicate ourselves. But the reason reason we're furious is twofold. It's one of two things. Either we suspect that what they're saying is actually true and we don't want to face it. We want to cover it. We want to hide it. And anger is one way to do it. How dare you say that about me? Or we know it's true and we are incensed that we got discovered and we want to hide it and we want to cover it. This is what we do. This is how we live our lives. Anyone who accuses us of anything, be it true or not true, we struggle with these things. But in either case, we're obsessed with ourselves. But what Job is teaching us here is that we don't need to vindicate ourselves because there's another who vindicates us. He is our kinsman. He is our older brother. And when Satan accuses us before the father, Jesus steps in and says, not true. Is it not true? More than likely, there's a lot of truth to it. But why is it not true? Why can Jesus say it's not true? Because all of those things that we've done are no longer true of us because they've been dumped on him. And he went to a cross to pay for them. Not only that, but God sees us and he sees Jesus. He sees perfection. And so the accuser can flap his trap as much as he wants. He can say whatever he wants. And you can say, go ahead. Go ahead. That is not true of me. And I don't need to defend myself. I have one who vindicates me. It's my kinsman redeemer. So we have an advocate. Number three, redeemer. So he would not only have a kinsman redeemer and he would not only uh, be vindicated, but he had someone that would redeem him. He had someone that would redeem him. Why is he so confident that he will see God well, it's because his redeemer lives. So what does it mean to redeem? Uh, to redeem something is to buy it back 
or to free something from captivity by payment or ransom. It's to pay something for it. For God to be his redeemer, God would have to pay. This is what his expectation is of God. Somehow, God will pay for his condition, his whatever is going on with him. But of course, this is the absurdity of absurdities, isn't it? That God would have to pay for his people? That God would pay something? Doesn't the guilty party pay? And this is where all the charges against God and the world fall short. The truth is that God doesn't need to answer to us at all. But you cannot say he doesn't care. Philip Ryken in his book, When Trouble Comes, said this. In a 2014 testimony about his experience with a debilitating disease, former Wheaton College provost Stan Jones provided a helpful perspective on all the questions about our suffering that we find it difficult or even impossible to answer. This is what he said. Long ago, I read a book about suffering. And the author made a point that I have had to return to time and time again. He said most of our why questions about suffering are ultimately unanswerable. God does not seem to be in the business of answering the why questions. And most of our philosophical responses to the question of suffering amount to various forms of taking God off the hook for the problem of suffering. But this author pointed out that God doesn't seem to be interested in getting off the hook. In fact, the answer of God and Jesus Christ to the problem of suffering is not to get off the hook at all, but rather to impale himself on the hook of human suffering with us in the very midst of our suffering. When trouble comes and places a giant question mark over our existence, we should remember Jesus and the empathy of the cross. You can look at a book of Job, at, a, at the book of Job, and you can say why it doesn't make any sense. I've heard people say that book makes me angry. I had somebody two years ago sitting across the table say, I'm reading the book and it just makes me angry. I just, this, this whole business of suffering. I had someone very close to me with that when they heard a testimony of somebody suffering, they said, it makes me angry. How can that be? How can God allow anybody to suffer? You can ask these questions all you like, but you can't say he's indifferent. The one who would suffer on a cross for us. Jesus is our kinsman, our vindicator, and he's most certainly our Redeemer, the one who paid for us at the cost of his own life. The suffering is not the point. Jesus is. It says in this hymn that we're about to sing, when I fear, fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. 
raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. That's the gospel, and it does change everything. Let's pray.